Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Repod It podcast presented by Rerouted. Rerouted is an online marketplace where people can buy and sell used outdoor gear. If you have gear to sell, please check out our app, the Rerouted app on the Apple App Store and the Google Play Store. If you're shopping for gear, check us out online, rerouted.co. That's R-E-R-O-U-T-E-D dot C-O. Now, on to the Repod It podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Repod It, the Rerouted podcast. My name is Brian Schoening. I'm your host, as always, and I'm here with my co-host for our author series, Christine Reed. Christine, how are you doing today? Um, best day ever, again. Best day ever, every single time that you're on the podcast. That's every time. Inc- that's incredible luck. The odds are astronomical, but I will take it. We are here with another really special author that we that we read uh, read her book in preparation for this podcast. Beth Giacino, you wrote "Walking to the End of the World: A Thousand Miles on the Camino de Santiago." How are you? And uh, and how? Yeah, how are you? We'll start there. We'll get into the, we'll get into the rest of it the rest of it after. But we'll start with how are you? I am doing really well. I am appreciating living in a place where all winter I could continue to be outside. So absolutely. You and I are both in the in the Seattle area where it where you can kind of maintain a a little bit of outdoor activity at least. I know that Christine and I were talking before uh recording here. She's visiting some friends in South Dakota and it's like negative five or negative three or something. So yeah, no, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Little I'm less... happy, happy to be doing this today because I can't go outside. <laughs> little, little less fun being out there when uh, it feels like you're hit by a brick wall when you open the door. <laughs> Beth, tell us how you initially got into the outdoors. You, you decided to take on this kind of incredible, incredible trip uh, that you that you wrote about, but we're we're gonna start with just how how did you get into the outdoors? Actually, I'm gonna say that those two stories overlap because I was in my late 30s and was very much. I mean, I work I work in books and publishing. I sit in front of a computer all day. I was running my own business and had you know six different screens open all the time. My idea of fun really was a couch and a book and a cat more than, you know, some trekking poles and some snow spikes. And I was, I I thought I was active. I would go for walks around the city. I would do those kind of things. Um, But it really wasn't until I kind of hit a point of burnout in my mid to late thirties and realized that something had to change. Um, I loved my job, I loved my life, I loved my husband and my family and my cat, but it was just this postmodern screen-based burnout that was pushing up against my buttons and saying, I need to do something different. I need to change my my physical perspective. Um, And that's about the time I came across the first time I'd ever seen the Camino de Santiago referenced. And so I went from, you know, people talk about couch, couch to 5k as their introduction to the outdoors. I went from couch to a thousand miles. That's amazing. Christine, you had a little bit of a similar story to that. I did. Yeah. Um, after graduating college in my early twenties, I just had never done anything outdoors and found out about the Appalachian trail and was like, 
I'm going to go do that. Yeah. And it's kind of fun because you don't know what you're getting into. I think like if you've, if you haven't done a lot of the interim steps, you throw yourself into these grand adventures um, without that, that physical sense of, oh, what am I doing? It's just, oh, this is a great idea. How hard can it be? It's just, it's just walking was one of my dangerous quotes. <laughs> yes. It's just, <laughs> it's just walking. It's I, just walking. I love that. That's the kind of just one foot in front of the other mentality that mm-hmm. everybody's had to employ at some point on the trail. You know, everybody's had kind of the, the fight or flight moment where you're just like, all right, like I can't go back. So I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep going keep going forward I suppose one of the things I always say about writing and about outdoor things is like naivete can be a really strong attribute like it it will allow you to start things that you probably have no business doing (laughs) but make it a better experience because you're not like scared you know yeah and I think that that was I think that was part of what taking that trip on felt like was this you know I I convinced myself that it's just walking. Um, and I wasn't, you know, Christine did the Appalachian Trail and kind of sent herself off into the woods and the wilderness. I walked across Europe. I walked across countries that had civilization every few kilometers. Um, I was never really at a loss for, for good food and companionship and a pharmacy if I needed it. And I, I went into it with that mentality much more than, oh, but I'm still going to be walking a thousand miles. And so my gear matters, my shoes matter, my, you know, this is still some kind of huge undertaking. If you guys want to hear the shoe story, you're going to have to read the book. We're not going to, we're not going to spoil that one, but it was an incredible theme for about the first half, I I think. And it, it seems like it got sorted. It got sorted at some, at some point. Um, Christine, Um, you and I were talking uh, ahead of time about kind of that different dynamic from from your experience and Beth's experience with with kind of the the camping and you were, you know, a couple of days between towns where you were, you know, really looking forward to that hot meal in the shower. Mm -hmm. Um, So for, for you, kind of explain that process and and what that was like. Yeah. So when you're hiking a long trail in the U S there's oftentimes that it's five, six days between towns. So you're spending all day, every day thinking about the next hot dog you're going to eat or Mac and cheese, or like something that from a restaurant, like real food, because you're eating ramen noodles and like dried rice all day. Um, So I just thought like, I spent so much time on the Appalachian trail. And then more recently on the Colorado trail, thinking about food, thinking about showers, thinking about sleeping in a real bed. And when you're on the Camino, you're doing those things every day. And so I thought, what do you obsess about all day long? If you're not thinking about food. Um, So the commute, because the Camino goes across, you know, is a historic trail that goes through towns. You are, you do have these opportunities to stop, um, and you know, get your cafe con leche or your your meal, your ba- your French baguette and cheese. What do I obsess about during those times? I mean, I think take your mentality and just compress it down so that you're <laughs> now only planning. You know, what's for dinner tonight? Where am I going to stay tonight? I think there's still. 
I think on any long trail and in the people who I've talked to about this, there's always that a little bit of that mentality of, of focusing on the next destination. And it's actually one of the harder things to overcome in long distance hiking is being present in wherever you are, as well as knowing where you're going. Um, one of the Camino's challenges, I think, is because you're going toward a hostel or a, a place to stay every night. And you, and you know that these, these comforts are coming, but they're a little uncertain because a lot of us weren't making reservations. It's not like I went with an itinerary of I'm staying in these places every day. You walk into either that morning or the night before, or sometimes while you're walking during a day, you're kind of making a decision about how far you're going. And so there's this kind of constant, we call it the bed race, um, because you're on this trail with other people and they're, you know, also going forward and you're kind of mentally, you know, the stress moments of it, the like obsession moments of it are sometimes the counting okay, five people walked past me because they're faster than me because I'm not very fast. And so I'm comparing myself in that way. And I'm also kind of keeping track of, well, my guidebook says that, you know, this place that's up the road only has 10 beds. And so will there be a space for me? What, what will that, what will that be? Um, so I guess on one hand, it's, it's the short term. It's the, oh, I don't, I know I'm not going to have to wait very long, but there's also the because it, I think it probably makes it much more destination focused than than the people I've talked to who have done like AT or PCT. Yeah. How? So you only mentioned it, I think, one time, kind of at the beginning. How uh, some of the folks that you were chatting with on the trail were struggling with the name Beth and referred to you as Elizabeth, and. I, I wondered, because we only heard about it once, did that stick the whole time? Do, oh, is yeah. Elizabeth now kind of like your trail, your kind of trail persona that you, then, that you yeah. have? I mean, I, I think every long trail, there's a certain amount of, of trail name. Um, and I would say in France, especially when, when we walked across France, we spent our first 35 days walking across France in we were surrounded probably by 80% of the people who are on those trails were French and the, whatever Beth sounds like in French, it was very difficult for them to kind of understand when I would tell them my name. And so we figured out pretty quickly that Elizabeth made more sense. And so I would say Elizabeth, but I will also say that trail names are trail names and nobody ever goes by their real name. And we were you know, more than we were any, we were our own names at all. We were the Americans because it was so unusual for there to be Americans in that part of the country on that part of the trail. We would, people would call and make reservations for us um, because I didn't speak nearly enough French to phone anyone. But so our, the friends we met along the way would call ahead and to a, to a hostel, to a gîte and make reservations for two Americans, no names. And we would show up and we would be like Americans and they would be like, here's your room. Um, so I feel like that was it more than even anybody's name was. But yes, there are still a few friends from the trail who, when they came home and they tried to find me on Facebook, when they, you know, when they saw the book or whatever, they were like, wait, your name's what? <laughs> <laughs> well, that leads perfectly into my next question, actually. How, how have you kept in touch? Have you been able to keep in touch with 
with some folks from the trip. Obviously, it's a little hit and miss. You're not always exchanging information and some people come and go and are sort of, a, you know, a snapshot at that time, uh, right. at that time in your life. But have there been any kind of lasting connections that you that you made from it? We definitely did. So my husband and I do. I keep saying we. I should clarify that my husband and I walked this trail together. Um, and we had made an an a decision from the beginning that we were going to be entirely offline. We did not. We had our phones with us, but they were turned off and stuck in the bottom of the packs. And so as people were kind of exchanging information, we missed out on a lot of that at the beginning. We just didn't realize. Again, I didn't have a lot of experience. You don't realize how quickly you can lose somebody on a long trail, how somebody you've seen every day for the first six days makes a decision to stop five kilometers before you or go 10 kilometers past you. And that throws you on a trajectory where you might still be on the same trail, but you'll never actually see each other again. Uh, And so from the first half of our trip, I think we lost a lot of people um, I think by the time we got to about the halfway point, we'd figured out that people disappeared and were better at exchanging information. And so via the wonders of social media and Facebook um, and all of those things, I've managed to stay in touch with a lot of the people um, from the book, especially from the second half. It was amazing. There was a there's a mother daughter American cup group that the mom lives in Maine. And when I was on book tour, when the book came out, we did an event in Maine and she came down and it was hilarious because we got to see each other outside of hiking gear for the first time ever and, you know, have that kind of reunion. And so that's been a lot of fun. Um, and then there's the stories of the people who you saw, we saw every day for 35 days and fully assumed we would see for dinner that night and something happened along the way. A friend got in, I don't want to give away too much, but a friend gets an emergency phone call and when we're not in sight and goes off trail and they're just gone. And we didn't, we realized that in 35 days of sharing rooms and dinners and stories, we actually didn't know their last name and didn't know how to, didn't know how to find them again. So it's, it's, it's a little bit of both. I think it's interesting who you end up staying connected to and who you don't. It was really interesting hearing you kind of get disconnected from people from time to time. And in my mind, as as the reader, I'm kind of wondering, oh, is this is this person going to pop up again later? And sometimes when you when they do, you're like, oh, wait, that's that's the person from back at this other time. But now they're with a new group and they're introducing you to new people. And and it's just it's so cool how it kind of spider webs out there. Sorry, Christine, it looked like you were about to say something, but I that one jumped out. No. Um, yeah. I just think that's something that's really interesting about the Camino versus like in, in the woods trail, because there are only certain places you can get off trail when you're mm-hmm. walking on the AT and when you're on the Camino, it's like at any point you could just hail a cab. Right. You know, it's so much more like you're in town. So you can say like, okay, I'm just going to stay in this town or I'm just going to go, you know, get a ride to that other town real quick and come back later. Um, We had a friend, we had a friend in France who took a weekend off of hiking to, where was she going? She was going to wine country. She was going to, you know, she was just going to hop on a bus, walk five kilometers into town, hop on a bus, go to her friends who were two hours away for a baby shower Hmm. and then come back the next day and keep hiking. Like it was very much this fluid movement in and out of people's normal lives especially for the ones who lived that close yeah I was hoping you might talk a little bit about 
the French part of the trail and why you decided to go that route? Because I know lots of Americans know about the Camino de Santiago, but that's right. not the version that most of us think right. of when we think about the trail. Which is interesting. So the Camino de Santiago, just a little bit of background in case a listener doesn't know, is the it's the historic way pilgrimage way that leads to Santiago de Compostela, which is a city in northern Spain that was the third most important pilgrimage site for Christianity in the medieval times. And there wasn't really ever a starting point to that trail, right? Because people were coming from wherever they lived and they would kind of gather onto the limited number of roads that existed and kind of funnel over the Pyrenees and toward, toward Santiago. And so historically there are one, two, three, four, starting four places in France where people from all over Europe were gathering because they were already historically important sites. And then they would kind of collect in groups for safety and then walk from there. In modern times, most everyone thinks of the quote unquote, the Camino de Santiago, the most popular part of the trail is actually one specific trail that goes across Northern Spain. And it starts in a town at the French border called St. John Port and travels 500 miles across Northern Spain and ends in Santiago. The thing is in 2013, when I first heard about this, when I first kind of discovered that this was a trail, I had no idea any of that. I heard a story of a woman who had only walked for the last five or six days that I knew. And she, you know, talked about joining her daughter who had started way back in Europe, but she was only going to be there for the end of it. And she talked about mud and rain and blisters. Um, but she also talked about this amazing connection that she felt with the people that she was meeting from all over the world. And she talked about the amazing dinners and the wine at dinner every night and the, the sense of, of being part of something that was bigger and part of that history. And so that's all I knew. And so I did what every good writer book person does, I went to the library and I looked up Camino de Santiago in the library. And the first book that I happened to check out was um, a book by an author named Conrad Rudolph, who had written about a thousand mile journey starting in La Puy back in the eighties, I think it was a long time ago. Um, and so my first introduction to the way of St. James was that this was a thousand mile, three month long trail. And so that's kind of how I approached it. And that was the length of time I felt like I needed at that point. I really needed a sabbatical. I really needed not to take one month off, but I really needed to take, you know, a season to do it. And so that's what, that's what drew me into it. And I love the fact that that was my first walk. I love the fact that I had kind of these 35 days of immersion before before I ever saw other Americans, before I ever saw other people who were more familiar with that second half of the trail. But there are there are five or six at least different marked trails that crisscross Spain too. So it's not like there's any one, there's one Camino path. You know, people are always like, oh, did you do the whole thing? No, there is no whole thing. So I think that that's kind of a cool, I think that's a cool piece of it. It's a constant journey and a constant experience. You talk sometimes in the in the book about you know your Camino experience mm -hmm. and and how it's it's a little bit unique for everybody. I I really I'm glad that you brought up how 
how the trip was a little bit kind of split in two with the France section and the Spain mm-hmm. section because there there felt like a pretty pretty clear shift in in your kind of in in yep. your narrative and your voice yep. a little bit um where where you felt like it, the the France part just kind of resonated with you and then there was maybe a little bit of culture shock um in in the Spain part and your your husband had the the quote that he kept repeating to you practice acceptance mm-hmm. and um i thought that that was not just for for that in yeah. particular but i think that that's a a really good uh kind of mentality to have and thing to think about just in general um but talk a little bit about that that clear dynamic shift from from france to spain that you experienced yeah so a lot of the people who walk the the route from Le Puy actually end in St. John. And so we had been walking for 35 days across rural France um, in a community of, you know, we were seeing maybe 20 or 30 people a day. We would see the same people over and over. We would have these communal dinners around tables of, you know, maybe 10, maybe 20 people, but usually more like eight to 10 people. It felt it felt very much like a family. It felt like, like my Camino family um, and my experience. And it was it was quiet and it was pastoral. And then we arrived in St. John, Pitaport, which is where the, the next part of that trail starts and where the vast majority of people who are walking the Camino are going to start. And we went from we went from seeing 20 to 30 people a day to see to there were 500 people who started out of that town the day that we started out of that town. And it felt like we went into a circus. And I'm, I don't try to hold that back in the book. Like I know I sound like a stuck up brat. I know I sound judgy and I know I have all of the moments and I don't ever wanna write a memoir or tell a story in which I try to cover up the parts where I was not at my best. Um, and so I get a lot of feedback on like, oh, you really didn't like Spain. And I didn't. It took, it was, a, it's a culture shift. And that doesn't mean it was good or it doesn't mean it was bad. And it took about a week for, to really appreciate what the second half of the journey was going to be. Um, I talk a little bit in the book and I, I understood this more when I got back that, you know, every journey, no matter how long it is, if you're on a trail, really comes down to there are three parts to it. And the first part is it's a test of the body and you're physically getting used to it. And the second part, the middle part is it's a test of the mind and your, your mental, this is when your mental challenges kick in. You're like, okay, I figured out how to walk. I figured out how my poles work. And that's when, like Christine said, you're, you have these long stretches of time where you have to figure out what to think about. And a lot of people can get really introspective. A lot of people figure out themselves in this period. And then the final part of, I think, most walks are it's, it's this gift to the soul. You know, a long walk is if, if you're doing it well, if it's working well, like you have fun. And that middle transition part for me, wrap, ending the journey through France, ending the walk through France, and then setting off on kind of the second half that was culturally so very different. Um, and it was more diverse and it was younger and people were having a lot of fun that was my test of the mind. My test of the mind really was that, you know, idea of practicing acceptance, idea of, of things change and that's okay. And look for the beauty in what that next part is going to be. Because 
I think on any of these events, um, the people are so much, so important to what your experience is. Do you think it was as much of a shift because you just kind of missed France? I, I sort of, I sort of wondered that as I was reading, I was like, oh, like, I think Beth just kind of misses France, you know, like it just, it, it maybe just didn't quite resonate as much. And, and that there was just a part of that. I mean, France gave me a cheese plate with dinner every night. So I don't want to knock like the food. The Okay. For those who have walked the Camino across Spain, I do love it. I have, there's a whole lot of good things, but the food in France is better. <laughs> um, and, but I think I'm glad I ended in Spain. I'm glad I had that, that second kind of experience because it was much more diverse. You know, in France, like I said, 80% of the people are, 80% of the people you meet are, are doing, you know, are French. And you get to Spain and you're meeting people from all around the world. I was meeting pilgrims from all around the world. And that was huge for me. Um, having that much more global experience was very important. Having that, that sense of anticipation as you approach Santiago with these crowds that are constantly increasing. I think that that's part of the historical experience that I'm really glad I did. Um, uh, one of the things that I found really interesting is that you were in your late 30s when you went. And I feel like culturally in the U.S. on the long, the long trails, it's like people under 26 and people over 60. Yep. Um, there's a huge divide. And so I did wonder what was your experience of that divide over there? And also, like, how did you feel about not fitting into one of those categories? Or did you not even notice? Because there were so many oh, people. It is it is absolutely the same thing. Um, the Camino draw, draws a lot of people who are retired. Um, it is a little more physically accessible than I think a lot of the U S long trails. And also those are the people who have the time to do it. And people who are just out of college and haven't really gotten started yet. You'll see a lot of that. People who are in their late thirties are usually busy with careers and families and, and a lot of things. So I don't, I didn't really think about it going in, but I wasn't surprised. It was fun to realize that older people who were on trails with us, who would meet us, would just assumed we were 20 um, because we clearly weren't 65. And the only other opportunity to do this is when you're like just out of university. Uh, and so I got to be, I was 38 going on 22 for three months. It was amazing. Christine, yeah, I have <laughs> Christine. I have one more question, but uh, it looks like we've we've gone on here, and it looks like Zoom is going to kick kick us out in about eight minutes. So, do you have oh, yeah. any any final final questions too? I I just have one more. Um, I just wanted to know what Beth is hoping people will take from your story. What was the the reason to write it? That the thing you wanted to share that you hope people will will gain by reading your story. Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. I did not set out on this journey with the intention of writing a book. I actually, I work in book publishing. This was supposed to be my sabbatical. It was supposed to be my break. Um, and I was offline. I kept a journal, but I wasn't thinking in terms of sharing the story until I got home. And like Christine has probably experienced, like anybody who has done a long trail, you come home, you're full of these stories. You're full of these, I, I wanna tell you, I wanna tell you, I wanna tell you, this just happened. And I run in a crowd that's not super outdoorsy. I did at the time, especially. And people would consistently come back and say things like, oh, I could never do what you did. 
I'm not into extreme sports, which again, goes back to my, no, this is walking. It's one foot in front of the other, but also, you know, there's, I could never do what you did. I could never, you know, this sounds amazing, but I could never take something like that on. And I had this really strong reaction to that in terms of, no, I need you to understand. I had no experience. I had no, I, the first time I put that backpack on was on my way to the airport. I had never done any kind of like hiking. I'd never slept in the woods. I'd never like, there's a lot of things that I was still learning. And I wanted to write a book that didn't focus on, you know, you, you read a lot of travel memoirs, you read a lot of hiking stories that are about people's inner journey. Let me tell you, I went on this journey and all of the things that were happening to me during that journey of the mind or how I, how this changed the way I see my relationship with my mother or something. And I wanted to write a book that was not that I wanted to write a book where the camera was very clearly on the trail itself and what the experience of walking a long trail as somebody who wasn't, you know, an ultra marathon or super fit fastest known time kind of amazing story. And I love those, but that wasn't, that wasn't it. I wanted to write a book that at the end of it, you didn't really need to know me, but you needed to see yourself in that place. And I wanted people to, to be inspired and to have the, the, the resources to go do some kind of adventure of their own. That's great. I love that making it accessible. Yeah, that's yeah. very much. I actually much prefer that as the wrap up than the question that I was going to ask. So that'll just stay under lock and key. We'll just throw it away. And um, Beth, where can people find your book, your website, your, your social media? How can people uh, follow along with, with your next, your next journey or your next book? If there's, if there's another one in the, in the future, how can people uh, keep up with you? Um, so the website for the book and all of my Camino adventures, lots of pictures, lots of articles is Camino times two, T-W-O spelled out dot com. Um, I am also on Twitter and Instagram at Beth Giacino. And so happy to see people there. Whether there's a next book is a really great question. Two years ago at the beginning of the pandemic, I was on the verge of doing something that didn't happen. And so now we're kind of waiting to see what, what the next adventure really is. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Christine. Thank you for co-hosting once again, Beth, this is Christine's second episode co-hosting. I think she did a phenomenal job. Um, she did a, she did a really good job the first time. And I, and I think was able to felt a little more comfortable jumping in this time, which was, which was awesome. And, and we love that. So Christine, thank you so much as well. Yeah, thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, that has been the Repot It podcast. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Christine and Beth for joining me. If you have gear to list, check out the Rerouted app on the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store. If you have, if you're looking for gear, want to get a good deal on something, check out the website, rerouted.co. Thanks, everyone. Hope you have a great day. <laughs>